Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it is the week of April 12th, 2021, as we recap the two-game series, uh, weather canceled one of the games between the Chicago White Sox and the Kansas City Royals actually postponed it to May 14th, but they did get two games in the White Sox split with the Royals, a tough loss on Sunday. We will be recapping what happened over the weekend for the White Sox. Also looking ahead to their upcoming series against the Cleveland Indians. One of the hottest teams in all of major league baseball. Cleveland currently leads the American league central with a five and three record. And we have some juicy pitching matchups this upcoming week, including two AL Scion contenders and Shane Bieber for Cleveland going up against Lucas Giolito on Tuesday. And at the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Now joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Uh, the White Sox ended up only playing two games this weekend against Kansas City. Uh, weather postponing the Saturday game to May 14th, which will be a split doubleheader between the White Sox and Royals. Even though it's a split doubleheader, both games are going to be seven innings long, which is kind of weird, but that's a May 14th problem. But after these two games, White Sox fans obviously disappointed with the way that Sunday played out in the 43 extra innings loss. How are you feeling about the White Sox? Not just after the Sunday game, but they are now four and five in their first nine games in 2021. I think on the whole four and five after first nine games, that's not bad, but I think the particular way in which they're losing the one late inning lead lost after another, that's starting to add up a little bit because when we've looked at these numbers at the end of the year, when you look at 
leads or, or or team's record after the leading after eight leading after seven you start to notice that like those lost totals are in the single digits for i mean even for like good teams are sometimes in the low single digits sometimes teams go basically the entire season lose maybe one <laughs> game or two games white Sox are already at four uh maybe five when you come to yeah there was that one game in, in Anaheim, the Sunday night game where they were tied, but it felt like they could win it. And all these fringe games are there. There's a whole cluster of them that start to make you feel a little bit uneasy. If you look at the end of the year and you start thinking about like, well, the White Sox are on pace to win 86 games. They're out of the wildcard hunt. That's because they've lost nine games. They led in the eighth and ninth innings. That's when I think uh, you start looking at the games now and think like, yeah, it's, it's only April, but these April games do matter in the aggregate at the end in the specific fashion in which they're losing them. Yeah. So far, the White Sox have three losses in which they had the lead in the eighth inning or later. Two of those games were against the Angels and then Sunday's game against Kansas City. And there is the question about the bullpen, uh, especially the way that Sunday played out. Aaron Bummer couldn't do his job. He struggled against the two left-handed batters that he faced. That's really weird. Uh, Liam Hendricks finally gets a lead. He finally gets a save opportunity. And the first batter he faces is Carlos Santana. And Santana takes him deep to tie the game uh, to center field. Uh, So Liam Hendricks through nine games still doesn't have a save with the Chicago White Sox. And we have this question uh, from Mark Hope. Uh, again, the whole theme is a time to worry about the bullpen. And Mark's asking, the bullpen ends up just being okay and not the super bullpen. Uh, how does this, how does this affect the White Sox ceiling in 2021? Well, yeah, uh, brief correction. Liam Hendricks does have one save. That save where he ended up, they were leading by six in the ninth. They gave he him entered, a save for that? Well, he entered in the save situation in the eighth. So when he opened... It was a foreign lead, but I think the tying run was on deck or in the hole. So it was allowed. He was technically a save situation. And then by the time the ninth inning rolled around, it was a six-run lead and it got out of hand. But yeah, so technically he does have a save. But when it comes to their ceiling, <laughs> um, so yeah, this is where like it gets a little bit dicey when it comes to like the White Sox beating projections or even like depending on which projections you look at because there's a little bit of a – a divide between um, you know the lowest and highest, like Pakoda versus Zips pre Eloy, that you know there is a rather sizable range in just exactly uh, what kind of win total you're talking about. But say if you're talking about like high 80s win total, that's where I think like these losses start to cut into that a little bit, start to start to uh, limit the upside because when we think of like the really good teams from previous years, like even the White Sox last year with uh, when they didn't lose the lead in the ninth inning and only uh, had one loss, I think, after the seventh or after the eighth. That's where you think like, uh, that's how you beat projections is with these very, I, I guess, some would call them flimsy or lucky. Some would call them just like poor planning meeting or a uh, good planning meeting opportunity that uh, you just manage to beat the odds or you maximize the win totals in the games you can win. And so the White Sox have already, as we mentioned, like just putting a dent into that and making it really hard to win games like that or, or, or rack up like a really gaudy total in the win column when you have uh, the losses piling up already. That's, I think, what makes it tough. So uh, the thing you don't know when you're talking about a, like a season this early and not exactly knowing like what they're – dealing with or what kind of, I guess, the kind of margins they'll win by later in the year. Um, That's when I think you're getting to the point where uh, 
you know, you might look at the end of the year and say like, well, they just happened to have a lot of blowouts later in the year. And that was just an aberration early on. But if it's a normal spread of wins and I'm, I'm thinking like the Kansas city Royals in, in 2015, they were 82 and one after nine innings, they were 73 and three after eight, as you mentioned, the white Sox have already lost three games. They've, they basically use that allowance already for, uh, a season like that where the rest of the team wasn't that impressive on paper, but the bullpen really just did everything they could with every late lead. That's I think where it gets harder to beat projections, harder to shatter them. So it, it gets more in the realm of, okay, if they're not going to win 95 games, the projection of 86 or 87, now are you talking about a team that can win like 89, but maybe it's a weak division or the wild card sags a little bit and then get in that way. I think that's that's the kind of conversation they're inviting early on when they blow this many late leads. So from here, it's either the Boyd Sox bullpen is going to be really good, like the way they everybody thought they would be on paper, and they're not going to lose games. You know, or I guess the, the number of losses will dry up after this. And by and large, it'll look like a normal kind of a, a spread of wins. Or another facet of the team is really going to have to pick up the slack. And, you know, perhaps with the way the rotation is underperforming early on, that's where they can pick it up uh, with Tim Anderson out and Adam Engel out and and the outfield being thin. Maybe that's where they can pick it up. So there are other ways they can improve. But this definitely puts them in the hole early when it comes to just lucking their way into a really gaudy win total. Well, you mentioned as far as the starting rotation, Jim, and on Sunday, Dylan Cease, uh, I thought – that, he looked a lot better than his first start in 2021. Uh, he threw 90 pitches, 50 of them were strikes. His final line ended up being four and two-thirds innings pitched, four hits allowed, one earned run. He allowed three walks, and he struck out six. He had to throw some extra pitches. The umpire missed a clear strike three call, and Yohan Makata had an error, which we'll get to that <laughs> later in the show during P.O. Sox. Uh, as we had a question about Yoan Makata. But as far as Dylan Cease in his second start of 2021, again, we talked about as far as the margins that the White Sox are going to exceed their expectation in 2021, their projections. They're really going to need Dylan Cease to step up and help solidify the starting rotation. Do you feel any more confident in his ability after his second start? I do. I, I think this was more of the spring training Dylan Cease, or at least like the spring training isolated starts that we've seen from him over the last two years. Really, the, the fastball had some extra hop. It wasn't leaking over the plate the way we've seen it uh, do in starts to where like high fastballs aren't as effective. He was getting high fastballs by guys, either in terms of swinging strikes or foul balls, setting up counts early on, and then using the slider really effectively, especially in the first three innings. I think the the two things were that one, uh, as you mentioned, the extra pitches did seem to affect him, maybe took an inning away from him in terms of effectiveness. And that's something he's going to have to deal with because sometimes that happens, you know, <laughs> whether it's an error, bad luck, bad hop, what have you, he's going to have some extra pitches come in here and there. Uh, so he does have to prepare for like the occasional inefficiency that is not his fault. There's also the... Uh, you know, at least to me, it looked like a slider lost effectiveness towards the second part, or maybe like he was losing a bit mm-hmm. of control. So he wasn't in slider counts. Zach Collins went away from it. The changeup started to be a little bit more frequent, and that wasn't that good of a pitch for him. So I think that's one thing where, you know, whether it's an efficiency thing, uh, an endurance thing, or just inconsistency off to iron out over the course of the year, it's, you know, having the fastball is one thing, but then having a secondary pitch that you can go to, to, switch the order of things, pitch backwards occasionally, surprise hitters who are seeing him for a second or third time 
while he's on pitch number 80 or so. I think that's going to be the next step in his uh, maturation. But the way I look at it is that you had Cease and Michael Kopech teaming up to get uh, the pitching staff one run through seven innings. I think, you know, if you're in a, uh, a game where two pitchers are getting uh, you into the late innings with only one run on the board, I think it more or less does the job. I think for Cease to take the next step, he'll have to be able to do that when Michael Kopech isn't rested at the ready to carry that. And they might need six innings from him for one start. But for the circumstances where the White Sox were off two days in a row, uh, I think he made the necessary strides to feel better about the spring training version of him actually showing up when games count. What if that is the plan, though, Jim, that Michael Kopech is going to follow Dylan Cease during his starts in the sense that, hey, if Cease, based on his, you know, effectively wild type of pitching uh, that he has, that if he can only get you through five innings, well, the White Sox, specifically specifically Tony La Russa, trust Michael Kopech to pitch two or more innings when he comes out of the bullpen. What if that is a strategy that Kopech is always going to be ready in Dylan C starts to take over the sixth and seventh inning to try to get the ball to Aaron Bummer or whoever's going to be setting up for setting up for the White Sox in the near future. It's not bad. It's just more, I, I think uh, it's more reliant on the pitchers ahead of him doing his job then. Um, you know, and it also takes like Michael Kopech out of the uh, equation for Carlos Rodon starts and Rodon with his own efficiency issues may, he may need the same thing. And, you know, maybe once, yeah, I think once Tony LaRussa knows what to expect from certain guys, and I think, you know, like Lance Lynn showing up, throwing a shutout, that's, that's more along the lines of what Lynn looks like rather than the four and two thirds guy who made his first start with the White Sox. Uh, you know, that's one thing. But then when you have guys like Cease and Rodon who are mixed bag types, you know, you know, like Cease, you're trying to develop him for six innings. Um, and, and there might be some starts where I'm thinking like, the example I always go to is John Garland for Ozzie Guillen and Ozzie Guillen's first year. Like Jerry Manuel tended to uh, basically, you know, call for the parachutes. <laughs> John Garland starts like basically when he started getting in trouble, like back half of the second time through four or five innings. Didn't let him get through out of trouble. Didn't let him really get into trouble later on. And then Ozzie, when Ozzie took over, he was more inclined to let Garland dig his own holes and try to get out of him. There will be some starts for a cease where that makes more sense. And, you know, it might seem like a slow hook or long leash and Larusa being asleep, but it's probably just more long lines of seeing what he has and seeing how resourceful he is when he's backed into the corner and he needs to deliver one or two more innings than he's on track to give them just because of what happened the days before. So I, I think there's going to be a balance for Lewis and the fine finding what cease is best at now and, and, and still trying to test here and there about what cease could be because, you know, we've talked about it just how thin the white Sox are uh, in the rotation that, you know, should, you know, God forbid a, an injury happen to the three starters above him, they might need cease to go five, six, seven, more regularly than he's on pace for. And, you know, sometimes it just might be like any other form of conditioning where you you have to push through a wall, you feel terrible about it the, during and after, and then eventually, you know, you, you build that muscle up a little bit and are able to do it more regularly afterwards. So that's, I think, going to be the the test now, but coming off two off days, it was certainly a, a, that option was available for Larusa to go to Kopech and he used it and that's fine. That's why going back to this Sunday loss, it is disappointing because 
When it comes to your number four, number five starters in those situations, no matter what team you are in Major League Baseball, typically they're going to be your weakest of your five starters. But if you can find ways to win during those two starters' appearances, I think that goes a long way in your chances of winning your division or at least earning a postseason spot. And with the way that C's pitched, getting the White Sox into the situation of only allowing one run through four and two-thirds innings, Michael Kopech doing his job uh, to get the White Sox to the seventh inning. The fact that Aaron Bummer and Liam Hendricks couldn't do their part, even with the extra days of rest and just flat out not performing to the level that we expected them to. That's where it gets a little disappointing, uh, especially. I, I, and I can understand as far as White Sox fans being disappointed as well, because, yes, a lot of people don't like the extra inning rules. I think it's fine. Uh, but that's not why the White Sox lost on Sunday. They lost because offensively they missed out on some opportunities. But, hey, if you're going to fork over half of your offseason spending to a closer, the expectation is that the closer can lock down a one-run game. But the White Sox are not, in the, they're not alone in this boat. Uh, Alex Colomay might be a sleeper agent, Jim, uh, for the Chicago <laughs> White Sox as he's blown multiple saves so far. All the uh, regression. Yeah, for the Minnesota Twins, uh, that was a brutal loss that they had on Sunday. But instead of being tied with the Twins in the American League standings, essential standings, uh, the White Sox are still a game behind the Minnesota Twins as the White Sox are four and five and the Twins are five and four. So that's a little positive, a little negative on the pitching side. So going over to the offense, uh, let's talk about the walking White Sox. And this makes me so happy, Jim. I can't believe I'm saying this. After nine games, the Chicago White Sox are currently tied with the Los Angeles Dodgers with 50 team walks. Their team on base percentage is 354, which is amazing. That's third in Major League Baseball. The team slugging percentage is 390. That is not high, and that is far below expectations but that is only 15th in major league baseball. That is currently league average right now uh, in major league baseball. I should say that's the league median right now. And uh, one of our followers and supporters, Rob Liedemann asked the question. It looks like in a small sample size that the white Sox are walking a lot more. Is this method sustainable? I think among some players, there are like some of the turnover the White Sox had during the offseason was did have that in mind, like going from Nomar Mazzara to Adam Eaton. Eaton's usually decent at drawing walks, you know, having Grandal there and, and no James McCann, like having like having the combination of Grandal and Zach Collins versus Grandal and, and uh, James McCann. That's a big difference in walks because McCann seldom did. And then you have Andrew Vaughn, who is doing nothing but walking. And then you have your mean Mercedes, who is currently scaring the pants off every American League pitcher and is now getting pitched around and is not indulging them. So I think with those four players alone, that can put a dent in it. I'm thinking like last year when Grandal was basically the guy to get more walks. That's like one guy alone is going to do that. When we're talking like a third of the lineup is better at walking, that can materialize, especially like in in small samples like this where they're, you know, I don't count them like being a top of the league or being like, you know, near the top of the league, but at least being average, I think would be a major stride. I think the one guy who I think is maybe a bit confusing or, or counterintuitive in terms of walking is 
uh, Luis Robert, who's actually doing pretty well in that department early on, even though he still swings a ton, is very aggressive. Um, that's one where it seems like it could fall off. And if you're counting on him to be an on-base guy, that's probably not good. But you know, fortunately, when, you, when you're looking at the way the White Sox are walking, it's he's more of a bonus, I think, at this point. You're having other guys who are more sustainable, more known for it, who are doing that, getting on base. And ultimately, that's going to be what carries them. A guy like Robert doing it, a guy like Tim Anderson, you worry healthy doing that. That would be something where you just be like, eh, that's that's a lucky week. <laughs> and if they're, if they're walking like four times in three games, they're going to walk three, t- you know, uh, three times over 30 games and it's all going to balance out. But with Vaughn there, uh, Collins there, Grandal, Eden, even Moncada, like, uh, you know, Moncada might be a little bit too passive right now and, and, and kind of uh, trying to find the balance between his uh, 2019 and 2020 selves, but at least he has the ability to do so. So it's, it definitely feels more sustainable than just the lucky week, even if they might not be best of American League good. I also got this question on Twitter from one of our Twitter followers, Scott Milburn. And Scott asked, should the lineup separate guys that actually walk, like your Mercedes and Andrew Vaughn? On Sunday's game, Mercedes batted fifth, Vaughn batted sixth. But should, as far as the guys that tend to walk, and it is sustainable with their walk rates, should they go every other, or does that not matter? I wouldn't say that matters so much. I think it's more a matter of handedness and being susceptible to uh, one-handed pitching or another, and in this case, both righties. So if you're, if Larusa is still really uh, skeptical, whether he's skeptical or just cautious about having Vaughn face tough righties, then you don't want just to set up a lineup to make it really easy to uh, knock him down. So in this case, I think with Vaughn, the way he's managing him right now. He went to Eaton in the late innings. He uh, pinch hit for him with fantastic results. Eaton hit a go-ahead homer. But I think that's a case where if he's if he knows he's going to pull a guy when the bullpen arrives, then it doesn't matter so much and you can spread him out. But I think if you're going to uh, – when you when you have like fixtures in the lineup who aren't going to be pinch hit for, I think it's more a matter of having handedness balance, not being too vulnerable against any one kind of pitcher to where uh, the other manager doesn't really have to pay any – heed to the three batter minimum and can just set up, <laughs> make it really easy for like the seventh, eighth innings, just say, Oh, righty's up. Uh, let's send in a, a sidewinder and get through that inning. No problem. At least having the handedness balance, even if it's not like a true left, right, left, right situation makes the manager think a little bit more. And the walks I think are uh, more or less a secondary concern right now. I I'm just so happy that they're walking. Yeah. Honestly, this is something that we have been talking about for years. Our our eight seasons podcasting about this team. We I don't think I recall any moment that they they're walking at this type of rate. I mean, again, they're tied with the Los Angeles Dodgers, Jim, for the league lead. The mm-hmm. last time the Chicago White Sox finished in the top ten in walk rate was two thousand and seven. And the last time they led the league, which was a terrible year, which was a terrible year. And the last time they led the league in walks was 1996 in which, you know, Frank Thomas had it above 400 on base percentage. Tony Phillips Mm -hmm. had an on base percentage above 400. Uh, So we are really in uncharted territory Uh, for some White Sox fans. You've never seen this before. And, you will have some fans that say, okay, that's fine. They're walking a lot, but they only scored three runs. And I think eventually once the bats get hot, 
if you're walking at this rate, you're to score more runs. I, I hope the White Sox can still maintain this type of walk rate because if they can, you're putting more pressure on the pitching staff. You got traffic on the bases and hopefully knock on wood when the hitting comes back or specifically when Tim Anderson comes back uh, and you're having the ball more in play, then you're going to be doing a lot more damage. Then you're Mm -hmm. just not hitting a bunch of solo home runs. You're hitting a bunch of two or three run shots or in the case of Jose Abreu grand slams, and then you're doing more damage in one instance. I really do hope offensively this is something that is sustainable for the White Sox and sticks around because after watching them the last couple of seasons where they're in the bottom 10 or they're the league's worst, then you're really hoping that hits fall into the outfield or get through the infield or they find themselves in the bleachers. But it's so limited on how much damage they could do in a game when mm-hmm. you walk the way that the White Sox are, or again, back to the Dodgers, the Dodgers are eight and two. I think that's the best record so far in Major League Baseball. You're constantly putting pressure on the other team. And as long as they keep doing that, and when, when the bats get into rhythm and that 390 team slugging percentage gets back into the 400s, back to what we were expecting them to have in 2021, then I think the runs will really pile up for the White Sox. One of the surprising things I, I looked up when the White Sox had, you know, the first time they walked 10 times this year is I, I looked up like, what's their record when they walk 10 times in a game? And over the last 10 games, they're five and five. It's almost like they don't know what to do with all those base runners. <laughs> kind of a shock to the system. Uh, and, you know, I think that's why, you know, perhaps, you know, at least for some fans who watch every game and and might not, you know, watch it from an analytical bent, just might watch it more along the lines of what their eyes are telling them. It might say like, "Oh, what good are walks if you don't drive them in?" You know, and if if you go five and five in games where you walk ten times and have that much traffic, you might believe that walks really don't do that all that much. But the way I look at it is, you know, it sucks going one for fifteen, but it's that's better than going one for seven with runners in scoring position. I'd rather have fifteen shots and seven because you know more often than not, even if you go four for fifteen, which isn't all that remarkable, that's probably five six runs, especially with a solo shot here and there. So. That's what you want. Um, and, and one for 15 is rare or it's, it sucks, but it's rare. And I was watching the White Sox while the Yankees are playing. And I usually follow like one beat writer for every team just to be able to get updates from every, uh, you know, every team that's going on. And, and I follow Lindsay Adler at the athletic and while the White Sox were struggling with runners in scoring position, she was saying the exact same thing about the Yankees, just basically inning for inning. Uh, and, and she was retweeting what fans were saying, how they were making fun of them. Just like, and, you know, as I often say, you know, no team's problems are unique. And that's one case where even the best offenses look that bad, oftentimes because they just have a lot of runners in scoring position to begin with. And hopefully, you know, this is the White Sox just not taking advantage of a really good week of batting eyes by their offense. And if if this has at least some staying power, then you should have more games where they go six for 15 and, and have blowouts. And Jose Ruiz is pitching in the ninth inning of a, a seven run lead and you're feeling great. Well, before we preview the upcoming series against the Cleveland Indians, our Golden Cog, our Player of the Week, in which you guys get to vote on on Twitter by participating and following us at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And 57% of the vote went to Lance Lynn, and I think it's deservingly so. 
Again, if you watched or listened to the episode with Connor McKnight that I had over the weekend, uh, Connor and I talked about Lance Lynn's very impressive home debut with the Chicago White Sox, a complete game shutout, five hits only allowed, no runs, no walks, 11 strikeouts. That's the first time in Major League Baseball history a starting pitcher has thrown a complete game shutout with more than 10 strikeouts and no walks for a home opening day. So really specific as far as <laughs> setting a new Major League Baseball record. Uh, but Jim, that was quite the home debut for Lance Lynn. And uh, he's got another test this upcoming week as he'll get a start against Cleveland, which we'll preview here in a moment. Uh, but for the Golden Cog, I think the fans picked the right one. Yep, uh, I think it was pretty much a no-brainer. I think Michael Kopech was also on the list, and he's done basically everything you could possibly ask for him for, him for that uh, role that he's in. But just you know, based on uh, the context of Lynn's start, not just that he threw a shutout and a home opener and dominated and looked every bit like Lance Lynn the White Sox were supposed to get, but also just in the context of the rotation struggling so much and him providing – the bullpen a day off providing the first quality start. <laughs> That's how low the bar was just blowing, uh, blowing away the rest of the field by that much, I think was sorely needed and uh, gives, I think white Sox fans confidence in him, but also just um, hopefully, you know, gives uh, the white Sox rotation and Tony LaRusso kind of a, a way out of this a uh, little bit of a tough stretch, like a little bit of quicksand there. And especially in LaRusso's case, with so many bullpen innings to cover, just getting that straightened out. So yeah, it's, it's a big deal for him, but also has some, some effects where uh, it'll bleed over into other areas as well. Again, you could vote for upcoming weeks, golden Cogs by following us on Twitter at socks machine and following me on Twitter at socks machine underscore Josh, but Jim and I are going to take a quick break with a word from our sponsors, but coming up next, we preview the upcoming series against Cleveland. Come celebrate Lowe's first annual Spring Fest with a Charbroil Performance 5-Burner Grill was $249, now $199. And Style Selection 7-Piece Pelham Bay Dining Set was $219, now $199. Create a new dining experience this Spring Fest, a festival of fun and savings for your garden and total home, in-store or online. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. Dining set offer valid through 5-5, grill offer valid to 421 while supplies last. Selection varies by location. Patio accessories sold separately, U.S. only. Listen. You hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. The Chicago White Sox again are 4-5, and five, entering their series, a four-game series against the Cleveland Indians. As Cleveland is currently 5-3, and three, they had a rough start to 2021. They started 1-3, and three, but they have won their last four games, and they just recently swept the Detroit Tigers. And this is an offense that really picked up their production outside of the series they had against the Kansas City Royals, in which they really piled up a lot of runs against Detroit's pitching, which hopefully that's a good sign for the White Sox when they get a chance to face Detroit later this season. But the Cleveland Indians are averaging 4.6 runs per game, 
And on the run prevention side, they're still as strong as we have known them to be. They're only allowing 2.8 runs a game. So runs against Cleveland are going to be a premium over in these next four games. So like we just mentioned and talked about with the White Sox walk rate, hopefully that continues. Hopefully they can continue to draw walks, add more pressure to the Cleveland pitching staff, and hopefully the White Sox uh, could string some hits together because again if Cleveland's only allowing three or fewer runs per game we're going to see a lot more one run games and there's going to be more pressure on the White Sox starting pitching staff their defense and the bullpen speaking of the starting pitching staff looking at the probable pitcher starting with Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday these are all 7 10 p.m central time starts on Monday, it is Tristan McKenzie, the young righty for Cleveland, going up against Carlos Rodon. On Tuesday, this is the marquee matchup of the series. It is Shane Bieber, the reigning 2020 American League Cy Young, facing Lucas Giolito. On Wednesday, it is Zach Plesak, who had tremendous success in his two starts in 2020 against the White Sox. He'll be going up against Dallas Keuchel. And on Thursday, April 15th, this is Jackie Robinson Day, so the White White Sox will be wearing their 42s. Aaron Saval for Cleveland will be facing Lance Lynn, and hopefully Lynn can duplicate what he did in his home debut with the White Sox this past Thursday. And Jim, as I mentioned, Cleveland, they put up a bunch of runs against Detroit, but I'm still pretty skeptical with their offense. But on the run prevention side, they're still doing what Cleveland does, they make it really hard for you to score runs against them. Mm-hmm. And for this White Sox offense, like I mentioned, hopefully the walks continue. But unlike Sunday, hopefully they can strain more hits together with runners in scoring position. Because I have a feeling these next four games, runs are going to be hard to come by. Yeah, reading about the Indians, uh, just what they've been doing recently and, and their surge offensively, they are very, at least their success has been very based around the home run. And you can look at that two ways. One is that the White Sox haven't been hitting much of them, but they've been also pretty good at suppressing them, only eight and nine games. So if they can keep the Indians in the park, the you know the Indians still have the very uh, top-heavy lineup. You know, After like three or four spots, it becomes more or less negligible or... Uh, maybe more reliant on you know one good swing over the course of four at bats. So if they can keep them in the park, I think they probably have a better chance than say like the template that Detroit used, where their pitching staff is uh, thinner than what the White Sox have, and and the White Sox should be able to hold their own better against them. But you know with the way the uh, the ball hasn't necessarily carried for the White Sox early and with the way there might be some regression for White Sox pitchers in keeping the ball in the park that uh, you could also see it work the other way. But that's one thing that's encouraging about the White Sox pitching, despite some of the struggles when it comes to the the length of starts and some of the bullpen issues, is that the home run ball really hasn't been among them. And so if they can keep the Indians in the park and and keep them from uh, just getting cheap runs or easy runs, I think if they make them string together quality at bats and string together hits that might be a way to keep them you know keep their run holes like four and below which you know even if their pitching staff is their usual brand of stout you know makes those games a little bit more winnable i can't wait for tuesday's game giolito bieber hopefully there's a lot of people across the country who tune in i think that's going to be a fantastic matchup 
and it's going to be a tough night for the White Sox offense. We know how great Shane Bieber especially has been in 2020 and going into 2021. And I would even say this stretch has really started late in 2019 for Shane Bieber. But I think the frustration for me is going to be that Wednesday start with Dallas Keuchel in the mound against Zach Plesak. And Plesak, in his five starts against the White Sox, has just a 3.03 ERA. In 32 and two-thirds innings pitched, he strike out 36, only allowed six walks, and only allowed 24 hits, Jim. So he's he's piling up more strikeouts than hits and walks allowed combined to White Sox hitters. And especially 2020, it just didn't seem the White Sox had any chance mm-hmm. against Zach Plesak. And the fact that you're going to have him go back-to-back, you're going to have Bieber and Plesak, this is where I could say, you know what? It'd be a good thing if the White Sox can split this series because, man, those are those are two tough nights. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Plesak and Rodon, and, and you know the Plesak did shut down the White Sox the first two times they faced them, but the White Sox actually got them pretty good last time, at least when it came to not necessarily hits because they only had four hits over six and two-thirds innings, but they, they parlayed those four hits and two walks into four runs. So there's, uh, you know, there's at least some kind of success against the uh, against Plesak. The one thing though, is that game was the Carlos Rodon in relief game. So the White Sox were leading four to one, entering the bottom of the seventh. They gave up four runs in the bottom of the seventh, lost the game, and you know, basically was in the middle of that slow slide out of first place in the AL Central. So that was that ended up being Plesak versus Rodon in a way. But hopefully with Rodon starting this game rather than. Uh, uh, dropping in the middle of uh, an, a tough inning in a, in a role he's not uh, accustomed to, that this will go a bit better for him. For the keys to this series, again, hopefully the offense can pick up the slack, especially with runners in scoring position. They could capitalize more on those opportunities. But I have a feeling, Jim, this is going to be a low-scoring affair for the four games in this series. They are going to be tension-filled, And I think that's just going to put more pressure on this White Sox bullpen that they are going to have to perform. If they are, if they truly believe they are an elite bullpen, they are one of the league's best, that whatever lead that they are given after the fifth inning, they have to figure out a way to shut down Cleveland's offense. I think if the White Sox split this series or win this series, the bullpen's going to have to come up big. I agree with that, especially with Michael Kopech probably being out, or I would say definitely being out uh, of the opener against Cleveland, probably given the way they've used him early on, probably probably will get two days off after two and a third's innings just as they ease him back into work. So with Kopech out and Kopech being the only White Sox reliever who's really at the top of his game right now, it does uh, make it more incumbent on you know Aaron Bummer looking better, Evan Marshall, Cody Hoyer, Matt Foster, you know, that tier of reliever showing up and making sure that they can preserve whatever leads they have to get to the ninth inning. And then you hope that Liam Hendricks's blown save was more or less an aberration. I would say the other thing too, is just, um, you know, better at bats against tough right-handed pitching. Um, I think the quality of at bats has been pretty good so far across the board, but it's one thing to do that against uh, Kansas city and maybe against some of Anaheim's staff. But when it comes to, you know, what we've seen from Cleveland staff over the years, the kind of book that Terry Francona's coaching staff has on White Sox hitters to see them carry the quality of plate appearances over the consistency of the quality 
um, from one series to another. Uh, I, I think that's what we'll be looking for from the other side of the ball. We will be recapping the White Sox and Indians series this upcoming week after the Thursday game. Again, the Thursday game is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. Jim and I will have Sox Machine Live, which will be streaming live on our YouTube channel. And then, of course, the audio from that live stream will be uploaded into the Sox Machine podcast feed. So if you don't get an opportunity to watch the live stream on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine or watch on the embedded player on SoxMachine.com, no worries. The audio feed will be available and uploaded into the podcast feed after the show. But we will be recapping the White Sox Indian series on this week's upcoming Sox Machine Live. But coming up next on this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, you guys had a lot of questions for us. So let's answer them in P.O. Sox. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Socks Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And we've gotten so many questions from our Patreon supporters. Uh, all of our questions in our mailbag that we will be answering on this episode come from our Patreon supporters. So as always, thank you guys so much for your support. And the first question that we have, Jim, comes from Michael. And Michael's asking, should the White Sox be trying to approve this roster from the outside right now? I'm not sure how much Nick Williams I can take. I would say it's a bit early just because teams are still trying to figure out what they have and and who they're going to need and and so forth. And I I think, you know, when I think of um, earlier than normal acquisitions or or starting the trade deadline activity earlier, well before the trade deadline, I think of the James Shields trade just because I I think I'm trying to remember who started, but I remember uh, Penal's weighing and talking about like regrets that he had in terms of evaluation, real time opinion forming uh, things that he's learned from and, the one thing I thought was that James Shields is one I just, uh, it caught me by surprise because it went from rumor to uh, actually happening, like in thinking in the matter of a couple of days, but it was so early that I didn't really give it credence. And it's not like I could have stopped it, but I think like if I had a little bit more time to first guess, my attitude was like, oh, it'll help. It'll be fine. He's better than Matt Latos. Uh, Tatis isn't much at this point. So yeah, meh. And then it turned out to be a real disaster, and I just wish I gave it a little bit more uh, scrutiny and, and due diligence based on how quickly the White Sox acted. So uh, when I think of like jumping the gun on the market and trying to make something happen just to solve a problem before it turns into a full-fledged emergency, that's the trade that comes to mind. And I think like, okay, you know, a slower roll a little bit. But I think when it comes to the White Sox position player side, I think the first mile marker I'm looking at is when Adam Engel comes back and Engel's supposed to come back a little bit later than Tim Anderson. Sounds like Tim Anderson's going to be coming back like pretty much as soon as he can or within a couple days, um, you know, back from his uh, eligibility period. Engel seems like it's going to take him another week, maybe the next homestand after this one he'll be ready for. 
And, you know, when he's back in the lineup and you have, like, say, Adam Eaton playing most of the time in the right and you have Luis Robert playing every day in center, having Angle there and left over Nick Williams and Andrew Vaughn, I think, is it's a better situation because at least you know he can field. Like Vaughn, you know you're, he's not there for his defense. Williams, you know, we haven't seen much from him defensively, but even, you know, back with when he was with the Phillies, like his defensive metrics were really bad and... He looks decent at the plate and you know, depending on like, you know, um, you know, which pitchers he's facing, he might look like he can do something, but the numbers tell you and, and based on what we've seen so far, he looks just like a thoroughly replacement level player. So Angle for all his flaws, or at least maybe for all his flaw, because he really only has one, which is right-handed pitching, um, you know, at least he, he's a major league player and having him out there at the bottom of the order or maybe against lefties a bit higher up, um, he's... He helps, you know, he helps the lineup, he helps the defense, helps pitchers. So I think that's going to be one where once he's in the lineup, that'll at least provide a little bit more depth, a little bit more uh, certainty and comfort uh, there for White Sox fans to where it doesn't feel like uh, that you're looking around rosters or waiver wires or Schaumburg or whatever, just for looking for a sign of life. Uh, after that, I think probably by like later side of May, I think that's might when you might start seeing the White Sox look for outside help, but... With Tim Anderson coming back, Adam Engel coming back, I think that's, uh, you take a couple weeks to see where the offense and defense is from there, and then you reevaluate. Any possible targets that you are pondering about that could be outside additions, or do you have you not compiled a list yet? I haven't compiled a list yet, just because I'm mostly focused right now on uh, looking to see if Certain players like Dylan Cease, I watch his starts really closely. I watch Jermaine Mercedes at bats really closely. Andrew Vaughn. I'm, I'm still focusing on what the White Sox have and, and who's going to be the biggest problem before looking for outside help. But probably, you know, around that time, um, you know, mid, late May, that's when I start seeing like, okay, this is untenable. <laughs> and then you go from there. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that'd be kind of interesting if Adam Engel played every single day in left field. We've been through this before with him. Mm-hmm. But I get a sense that you have a higher level of confidence this time around if Adam Ingles playing every day in left field. Well, especially since like he at least plays defense because Andrew Vaughn, like the quality of his bats when it comes to pitches, um, you know, that's good. The quality of his contact, not so good right now. Like the only pitch he's really punished was 91 miles per hour from a lefty, you know, knee high down the middle of the plate. <laughs> so you'd hope he can do something with that. Um, but I think if you have Engel there, like maybe like 70% of the time, and then you hope by that point that Larry Garcia is looking a little bit better and can help uh, step in and look like a major league player on, on occasion. I think that's probably enough to where it doesn't feel like an active crisis the way it does right now with Andrew Vaughn and Nick Williams being like the two main guys. I do have someone on the radar and I'm just keeping an eye. He's not off to a great start. Uh, but that guy is Arizona's David Peralta. Yeah. And the only reason I mention him is again, you know, they signed Jake Lamb. Why? Because Larusa is familiar with Jake Lamb. I could see a possible trade for David Peralta if he picks up his game. And let's say Adam Engel comes back and he gets the majority starts in May, but he's not hitting. Mm -hmm. Then I could see the White Sox being like, all right, Adam Engel really needs to be our fourth outfielder. And we need another veteran outfielder in this lineup. Let's go get David Peralta because he is under contract next year just for $7.5 million, which we know is right in the White Sox wheelhouse when it comes to spending. 
And uh, he'll be 34 next season, which I don't think that would scare the White Sox away. And again, they have the DH, so he could help get some at-bats there as well. So that's the, that's an early name on April 11th that I have on my list. Just keeping it eye is David Peralta with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And since you mentioned him, Cole Calhoun's another one on the same team. Yeah, but isn't Cole Calhoun a little bit more expensive? Well, and a free agent after the year, but just in terms of just somebody who fits with what the White Sox theoretically need and doesn't break the bank and might be expendable for a lower cost uh, for a Diamondbacks team that just might want to get something yeah. for him. And it's not saying we're not saying the Diamondbacks are throwing in the towel, but that Dodgers team and that Padres team, yeah, they're pretty good. So unless they start really piling up some wins, I don't like their chances of uh, making the postseason. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what situation Arizona's in. I feel like they're not going to be in a complete rebuild, uh, but maybe there is a possibility there that they can shed a contract, a veteran off the roster. It would help the White Sox. Maybe the White Sox can help out Arizona by providing some younger players that they can uh, utilize in the upcoming seasons. But again, that's just a, that's the first name on my list. That list will continue to grow as the weeks keep moving on. But Michael, thank you so much for your question regarding as far as the White Sox looking for outside help now uh, rather than later. And they will be looking for outside help later <laughs> in the upcoming months. Our next question comes from Spencer and Spencer's asking, at what point do we start to worry about Yohan Makata? He went zero for five on Sunday with an error and that double play in the ninth inning was 2019 a fluke. I would say you start worrying about him in late May. I think they still have a couple weeks to go to figure out what he really is just based on like, you know, everything he's been through, just the, 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 I guess how young his track record is for having one really good year where he's fully healthy and had all his powers one year where a virus had basically wrecked his body. And now you have like trying to find some middle ground and figure out where he is and get back in the swing of things. And, you know, I think of, you know, last year with Jose Abreu going, you know, he was an MVP, but for the first couple weeks of the season, he was pretty terrible. Uh, just, uh, I'm, I'm just dialing up stats real quick. Yeah. 60, 86 OPS, had uh, two homers and three double plays. So basically just wasn't very good with runs in scoring position. Um, you know, just typical over-anxious mess, striking out more than usual, not walking. I'm looking, let me look at his, yeah, 15 strikeouts to two walks. So yeah, not really doing a whole lot. And then, you know, has the you know most insane two-month stretch of his life and wins the MVP. So with Moncada being the first week plus of the season, too early, uh, too talented. We, we know what he can do. We know that, uh, we know what he could do last year, even when he wasn't feeling great. So there's a long way to go yet. And the, the adage, uh, which is a baseball one. And generally I think it's pretty true is you spend the first 50 games figuring out what you have next 50 games, figuring out what you can get. And then the remainder of the season, just bracing, (laughs) you know, figuring out if you have enough, and I think with Mankata, that's going to be the way it plays out. First 50 games, which takes you into late May, you figure out what you have. And then after that, you figure out, like, you know, he's still going to be playing every day. He's he's a fixture. So it's just more a matter of, like, um, how much more help do you need offensively from other positions? Where do you bat him in the order? Um, you know, do you hide him against a certain kind of pitcher? That sort of thing. But for the first month, month and a half, it's going to be mainly about just letting it play out. And I think it's going to be the same thing for everybody, even, like, hot hitters like your mean Mercedes, uh, that's going to be a situation where you just let it play out. Like 
you think you know, there could be some kind of major regression in store, but you just have to let it happen. Just the same way that you have to let uh, Mankata try to regress in the positive direction. So that's that's where I'm at. It's a very unsatisfying answer. And, you know, if, uh, you know, is often the case when you, like, say if Mankata does struggle in late May, you'll have people say, like, I told you you sucked. Like, okay, yeah, you said it earlier than I did, but <laughs> ultimately when you have no other options for the position, you end up in the same place either way. So may as well just let patients work for you and try to reduce your stress level a little bit. That is a good point. I will have to say, though, like the whole is he a fluke or if he's a bust because if he continues to play this poorly, like his start, Jim, obviously that drum beat is going to get louder as the season progresses. And I hope not because, man, the White Sox cannot afford Yohan Makata to be a bust. But I will have to say throughout his White Sox career, there is more bad than good. And if he does not pick up his production and let's say – I would extend it even further. If he's still playing this poorly when they go to Denver for the All-Star break, then I would be concerned. Not just for this season, but long-term. Because, again, there's just more bad than good. And if 2019 is the outlier, then there's a whole buttload of questions, boatload of questions. Like, who's going to be your long-term third baseman? Can you count on Mikado <laughs> being the long-term, long-term third baseman? Boat or butt works, yeah. <laughs> yeah, butt or butt, boat works, yeah. But it, it, we don't want to go down this path. I, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you're a White Sox fan and you are seriously considering that Yohan Mikado is a bust or if he's a fluke, you don't want to go down this road. It is a very... <laughs> very dark road and it will get very depressing. And this is where it will suck out all hope that you could possibly have in the white Sox having a sustainable contention window, because I don't foresee a sustainable contention window without Yohan Mikata performing well, Jim. Well, when you mentioned the all-star game, I thought like, are you proposing dealing him at the deadline? Oh, good luck. Good Lord. No, (laughs) no, no. I don't even know. No, no, I'm just not going to entertain that. Not going to entertain that. So, anyways, uh, let's uh, let's avoid this dark road. We we went we went a couple blocks in. I am backing out as quickly <laughs> as possible. But Spencer, thank you so much for your question, and hopefully, Yoan Mikata starts turning it around quickly, and uh, that will most definitely help the White Sox pick up some wins. Our next question comes from Azinrec, and Azinrec is asking: Does the team defense ebb and flow during a season? Or are we likely stuck with whatever we've seen so far from the White Sox? I think it ebbs and flows. I think, you know, just an individual level, like having seen Tim Anderson get into slumps where he's, uh, you know, makes three errors over the course of five games and then, you know, goes three weeks without committing one. Um, So I, I can see that extending to multiple positions, just overlapping at the same time and not feeling great. And I think, you know, when you have like Mankata, Having if you start Madrigal, having an iffy start to his career, then you have some backups at shortstop, and then you have Andrew Vaughn and left, Adam Eaton and right. Uh, you know, just you have a bunch of flawed players or inexperienced players or inconsistent players all in a bad, like uh, <laughs> in 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 a bad part of their cycle, all at the same time overlapping, and that's when it feels like a. Uh, completely incompetent. But I can see, you know, I can see second improving. I can see third improving. You know, Adam Engel, I mentioned him just because I think that's what he provides in the left field, just defensive stability there. Um, that helps. And then all of a sudden you're worrying about basically like, um, you know, maybe 
short middle infield, depending on how you feel about uh, Madrigal improving. Uh, and then maybe right field, depending on how you feel about Adam Eaton, just being, uh, you know, whether he can rebound a little bit or whether, you know, his poor defensive metrics from dating back from his Washington days and carrying over early in the season, you know, whether that's just a product of his aging process, the way he ages and you know, might have to cover for him a little bit. But there's right now, I think just when you, when you think about just the way the White Sox um, bullpen is all just kind of overlapping at the same time, have, having just bad performances one after another. Defense feels like the same thing, and I think they're both feeding into each other and, and which the defense extends innings for uh, relievers, for starters, you know, making Tony La Russa more reliant on his relievers. I think it's just uh, it, the defensive struggles are playing up the pitching struggles, which then reflect on how important and costly those defensive struggles are and just like a, a cycle that uh, just will drive you insane. So I, I think my hope is that Moncada improves, Magical improves, left field's still a bit of a mess, but at least you have enough positions covered and some defensive replacement candidates available to where it's not going to be this bad for much longer. My concern is the guy in right field in Adam Eaton. Mm-hmm. He had a big moment. He gave the White Sox the lead with a two-run homer. Offensively, Adam Eaton has been performing well defensively he leads the team in errors and he has the one fielding error that cost him a few runs against the angels which he just completely whiffed but he's got two throwing errors Jay. yeah the one was the one that bounced off the mound after the one it bounced off Luis robert's head right exactly so i i would say that one is not he was never at the he didn't have to throw that ball to begin with like that wasn't his responsibility that was trying to make up for a teammate's mistake so i would take that one off the board but your point still holds oh i i don't know if i would take that i'm not taking that off the board as an outfielder you know you have to avoid the mound Mm -hmm. however he is getting older and when he did have a great defensive season with the white Sox in right field he got a lot of points uh, for his ability, his throwing ability. And he was strong in that department. Hopefully this is not a trend throughout the entire season. And I don't expect him to whiff again, fielding the ball, but throwing is something I would, I will be paying attention to for Adam Eaton because the throwing's off target right now for the first nine games. And again, ebb and flow as you mentioned hopefully that gets back to normal because i don't think adabine's making really good throws from right field and and hopefully that corrects itself uh nick magical as you mentioned getting better defensive play from second base one area that i am looking at is his ability to turn two it is almost night and day between his ability to turn two compared to yomer sanchez yomer sanchez was one of the league's best in the turn and transitioning for double plays. Nick Magical at times is just too slow, Jim. He's too slow with the transition. He did turn a nice one though. He did turn a nice one on Sunday. And that's like that's I want to see more I of that. I agree with you, but that was a tenth of a second slower than when Yoan Makata got him the ball. Mm-hmm. And I know we're talking about tenths of a second, but that play was pretty close. And I understand that a runner's coming down on him. Yeah. Uh, but he still needs to get into like half a second to be able to make that transition. And right now he's just not there. Uh, and as Connor McKnight mentioned in our last episode over the weekend, at times it looks like he looks at the ball in his glove and it's like a Rubik's cube and he doesn't know what to do with it. 
So those are the two areas right now. I know we focus so much attention on what's going on left field, but in right field, I want to see better throws from Adam Eden, Adam Eden, uh, more consistency from him. And then second base, Nick Magical's ability to turn two and, and approve of that area. Because if he doesn't, then again, that just creates more stress for the White Sox. And it goes down that dark, down, dark road path again, Jim, of what are the White Sox going to do? Because you really can't have a second baseman on the field every single day if he doesn't help turn double plays. Uh, I don't want to go down that road, but those are the two areas that I'm looking at specifically for the White Sox defense. I still absolve Eden for that throw just because he did have to make that throw from center after the ball hit off the center fielder's forehead. <laughs> Luis well, Robert why... was the chaos agent there. Okay, I'm not arguing about <laughs> Luis Robert creating the chaos. I'm just even more proof yeah. that Adam Eden can't play center field. Uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. As in rec, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle, you can tweet them to us. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Or the best way of getting your question answered is by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where you get additional content, you get exclusive content, and you get the ability to get our bonus P.O. Sox questions on the podcast, which we always answer. We answer more P.O. Sox questions than the regular podcast. And you also get ad-free versions of the show. And you also get first crack at our Sox Machine swag when we have that available. And we have plans starting at $2, $3, $5, and $10 a month, uh, depending on how much support you want to back us and how much more that you want from us. So again, if you are interested, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up. And speaking of Sox Machine swag, Jim, I believe you have put the hoodies on the website in the Sox Machine store. They are, and we're down to like five left. I think there's one large and a couple extra large and a couple double XL. So what you see is what you get on the site. And if you're in those sizes, we're out of smalls, we're out of mediums. So the pickings are slim. It's a- But the sizes are not. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's a hot item. I love my Socks Machine hoodie. Uh, it's a great price. That's another great way you can support us. Go to SocksMachine.com. You can go to the store and you can pick up your socks machine hoodie there do it quickly because as jim mentioned they are flying off the shelf and we'll restock as far as the socks machine shirts as well as we are extremely limited in quantities as i'm finally done moving in uh to the new house so we'll we'll get everything compiled again as far as inventory <laughs> i think i say we're gonna jack up the price again <laughs> <laughs> no no we're well, we'll <laughs> that's hilarious Oh, man. But anyways, that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll have more video content as well on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X by gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. 
Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.